Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the Sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. You certainly are. And this is our Influencer Podcast. Influencer? Well, we're influencers now? I really don't no, think You have to numbers. say it with conviction. Oh. We're influencers now! Oh. There you go. Uh, why are we influencers now? We don't have I read a nonsense article that said we're all influencers now. Oh, all of us? Everyone. Even you. I'm not entirely sure who we're supposed to be influencing because we're all so busy being influencers. Uh, apparently there's a cave full of troglodytes somewhere with a Wi-Fi hotspot and we're all just influencing the bejesus out of them. Why are we talking about this? What? what because is your, influencing what is, your angle is an here? important duty, Andy. Okay. With great influence comes great responsibility and we need to wield our power as a force for good. Influencers. Okay. Is this some kind of a theme or something you're setting up? Uh, I'm just going to influence. Hi, everyone. Eh, maybe read more books. That's it? That's your... <laughs> I, I don't want to seem too pushy. How about you? Influence away. Uh, Hey, hey every, everybody. Um, I'm, I'm Andy from Saga Thing, and I was just thinking, you know, smash that like button and, and subscribe. Is that a thing? Do we have a like button? No. That's more of a YouTube thing. I don't really know yeah, how to influence, I don't John. Think we have, I don't think we have a like button. Yeah. Um, I th- Here's my influencer thing. Uh. Um, I think jean shorts should come back. We should be wearing jean shorts again, everybody. There you go. <laughs> All right. You've been influenced, people. All right. So anyway, this is our 13th episode on Lax Dyla Saga. I hope you've it enjoyed the first is. 12. Yeah, 13th and last? Uh, I, I would say I doubt it, but I, I, yeah. I, I more than doubt it. I, I know Forlorn it's Forlorn hope, really. I don't know why I brought yeah. it up. But we're close. I'm going to say... This is our penultimate episode on Lax Dyla Saga. Does that help? It helps a little. There's a lot to get through today, uh-huh. actually. Uh, there's the ongoing fallout over the deaths of Kjartan Olafsson and Botli Botlison. And we've got slayings, and we've got journeys to Norway, and we've got nefarious plots. Uh, we've got we've got a marriage uh, betrothal mm-hmm. that is uh, gonna... Well, we'll have to just wait and see. A couple see. of them, actually. Yeah, so you name it, we we got it. It's all mm-hmm. in this one episode, right. just wait, for you. Wait, before before we get around to naming it, though, we have to explain how we got here. Let's how talk about what here? happened. Last time on Saga Thing. Still stinging from the death of her third husband, Botley, Gudrun Oswestotter is playing the long game, determined not to let her enemies, Thorgood Egglestotter, and the Olofsons have the last word in their bloody argument. Twelve years pass, but time is nothing to blunt the edge of Gudrun's anger. So she seeks the guiding hand of Snorri Gothi to help her teenage sons, Thorlik and Botley, carry their mother's feud into another generation. Snorri is his usual sneaky self, of course, and advises... Rank slander, sir! Hush, you'll have your turn. Snorri's shameless conniving directs Gudrun's vengeance toward an unlikely source, Helgi Harbenson, one of the less important members of Thorgerd's team of Botli killers. And for a leader for the attack, Snorri chooses none other than Thorgils Hotlison, who's been trying unsuccessfully to fill a vacancy as Gudrun's fourth husband. To gain his help, Gudrun swears an oath that Thorgils takes as a pledge of betrothal, but she may well have an ace or two up her well-embroidered sleeve. On the advice of the brilliant tactician Snorri, Gudrun's team makes a surprising recruitment pitch to two men who were actually in on the killing of Botley, Helgi's brother-in-law, Thorsten, and the Olofsson's uncle, Lambi. 
Both men reluctantly agree to help rather than become targets of the Butlerson's ire. The mismatched batch of killers accompany Thorgils to Helgi's farm, where they find Helgi, a sharp-eyed shepherd, and a pair of outlaws holed up in a shack. The attack is a violent and bloody affair, with deaths on both sides. But Helgi Harbinson is killed, and the sons of Gudrun return home having satisfied at least some of the demands of honor. But elsewhere, honor is hard to come by, as Lumby and the Olofsons fall out over his participation in the attack on a former ally. And while both sides lick their wounds and consider their next moves, Thorgils Holderson rides out to claim the prize of Gudrun's hand in marriage as the spoils of war. But what surprises might await Thorgils at Gudrun's farm? Who's next to be sacrificed in Thorgerd and Gudrun's bloody battle of wits? And what about Thorkettle Eilfson, still carrying his own torch for Gudrun in faraway Norway? Find out this time in Laxdala Saga, chapter 65 to 71. 71? Mm-hmm. So this episode's going to begin less violently than the last few have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gudrun will presumably be pleased with the success of the attack on Helgi Harbinson, which fulfilled a prophecy made when Helgi wiped Botley's blood on Gudrun's shawl 12 years earlier. Her sons can hold their heads up high, having participated in a revenge killing in their father's name, and Thorgils is on his way to Helgafettel to take up the marriage contract with Gudrun that he believes is now his. Yeah, but Thorgils might not have as firm a grip on contract language as he thinks he does. <laughs> With Snorri Gothi and Gudrun working together, it's probably best to consider the fine print very, very carefully. Oh, well, I think uh, from that we can just uh, dive in. Let's go. Part 46. Cold are the counsels of Snorri Gothi. So as soon as the dust settled from the fight with Helgi Harbinson, Thorgils and his crew rode to Rekyadal to report the slaying. Which is a good move, right? Uh, they skip past Helgi's farm which is much closer, but... Uh, right. I mean, this is sort of Assassination 101, right? You don't knock on the victim's door afterward and tell his wife, uh, Hi, you must be the widow of Helgi Harbinson. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. Um, but the law is pretty clear about the obligation here. A killer mm-hmm. must ride to the nearest farm and announce the slaying if you don't want to risk an accusation of secret murder. But uh, Well, okay, but the wording is important, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the Gragas law, the killer must... Publish the killing as his work within the next 12 hours. If he is on a mountain or fjord, then he must do it within 12 hours of returning. Hmm. He must go to the first house where he thinks his life is in no danger on that account. And tell one or more men legally resident there about the killing. Okay, so this is by the book. Because the important phrase Mm -hmm. there is the first house where he thinks his life is in no danger. Yeah, I mean, the killer is under no obligation to get himself killed at the house of his victim. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, that's what long-term revenge planning is for. You just got to write it out. Or lawsuits, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they announce the killing and then visit a couple of other places, but it's not long before Thorgils and the Butlersons ride into view at Helgefeld. Which is a good scene. Um, it's, it's late at yeah. night when they arrive, and Gudrun works quickly to wake up the servants to wait on them. And when everything is in motion, she steps out into the main room and greets Thorgils, and the rest of the party, and she watches as Thorgils removes his cloak and sets his weapon weapons up. He sits down, leaning against the post of the wall, and he's clearly tired, but he's pleased with himself. Well, and presumably still bleeding from his foot. From his what now? His foot? His foot. 
Why? Gorgos was wounded in the oh. foot during the attack on Helgir, remember? Right. Yes. Yes. He, he took a, a wound in the foot. So Thorgos yes. is wearing a reddish brown tunic uh, with a wide belt of silver. And he's got a, uh, I guess, a foot bandage. Thank you. There you go. And, and now Gudrun steps forward to sit down on the bench beside him. And here, Thorgil speaks a rare Lakstyla verse. Home to Helgi we rode, gorged ravens on blood, reddened shining shields oak, when we went with Thorlek. There we felled three skillful helmet trees of rare renown. Bortley's vengeance is done. Obviously, Gudrun is pleased by this poem and thanks them all. She wonders, where did you get this poem? Because so far in this saga, we haven't been doing poetry. Are, are you from and another Thorgils saga? Thorgils is hardly the, the poet uh, type. Yeah. Uh, well, when everyone is fed and comfortable, they finally retire for the night and a well-deserved rest. Right, but in the morning, Thorgils moves quickly to business. Yes, he does. He approaches Gudrun and explains that he has now done everything she asked him to do. And now that his side of the bargain is complete, he fully expects her to make good on her oath to marry him. Mm -hmm. And this is probably a good time to mention that there are two other men with Thorgils. They are Thorgils' foster brothers, Hattor and Ornolf Armitsen. And remind me why that's important again? Well, it's important because one of them was a witness to the agreement between Gudrun and Thorgils. The dimmer of the two. And more importantly, one of them wasn't. Yes. So part of Story Gothi's advice to Gudrun was that she get Thorgils to agree to help her by apparently giving him what he wants. Right, which is a promise to marry him, yeah. Apparently a promise to marry him. But uh, mm-hmm. it was Snorri who suggested the exact wording of Gudrun's vow. Um, and we made a big deal of it in the last episode, but I wonder if you uh, if you maybe remember it. Well, I don't need to. I still have it written down from last time. <laughs> uh, but go ahead. What uh, What was the promise? Okay. I declare in your presence as witnesses that I promised Thorgils to marry no other man in this country than him, nor do I intend to marry abroad. In the presence of witnesses. Right. Mm -hmm. And two of those witnesses are her sons, uh, Botley and Thorlik. And the third is Hattor Armidsen. But not Ornolf. No, uh, Snorri specifically warns Gudrun not to make that vow in front of Ornolf. Right. His exact words were, Thorgils is a man more given to acting than thinking. <laughs> Have Hattor, his foster brother, present, but not Ornoff, who is cleverer. So, so mm-hmm. John Snorri was afraid that a clever person might actually spot the loophole in that vow. Right, and last time we asked people to try and guess the loophole. Uh, so if you haven't already, pause this episode real quick and try to figure out what Snorri's up to. Well, he's being sneaky. Well, that's not, that's not a plan. That's a method. It's not a plan. <laughs> that's right. All right. Uh, if we're done vamping, everyone's got their tucked pieces I mean, of paper out. I got they more. It out. You go ahead. All right. So the loophole, which apparently Ornolf would have spotted, is that Gudrun promised not to marry anyone in Iceland, if not mm-hmm. Thorgils, and, and that she wouldn't travel abroad to get married. And that leaves a fairly large, I'll say, ship-sized gap. Yes. See, the logic is that her vow technically allows her to marry someone who's not in Iceland at the time, but who might return later. And who 
had just recently left Iceland. Oh, I remember. Thorkell yeah. Eilofsson. I guess, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty strange logic, though. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not like she put a time limit on the no one else in Iceland clause. Uh-huh. I mean, Thorgils has a pretty good case in court if he wanted to press it, doesn't he? Sure. Uh, for the record, I agree. But even with a strong case, Thorgils would have to go up against Snorri Gothi in court. And even if he won, he'd be fighting to get married to a woman who made a fool of him and who clearly doesn't want to be with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a gap between legal rights and practical application of the law, and Thorgils just mm-hmm. fell right into that gap. Thanks to the clever work of Snorri Gothi. Yes, and the crafty performance of Gudrun. And meanwhile, Thorgils has just come back from assassinating Helgi Hardbinson in order to earn the right to marry Gudrun. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, he's feeling pretty pleased with himself at the moment. He's got his feet up on the coffee table. He's measuring the house for new drapes. He's picking <laughs> out a wedding cake. Yeah, and now Gudrun realizes that she has to spell it out for him. She says... Mm-hmm. I will not conceal from you any longer, Thorgils, that I do not intend that you should be so fortunate as to have me for your wife. I do, however, intend to keep every word of my promise, though I marry Thorkel Eofsson, for, as you know, he is not at present in this country. Oh, uh, Thorgils is floored. Yeah. Uh, he flushes, his eyes are bulging, he starts ranting. Clearly now do I see where the current came from that sent this wave. They have generally been cold, the counsels that Snorri Gothi has sent my way. Which is a nice line. I like that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And Thorgils is so angry, uh, knowing now that he's got no chance of claiming Gudrun as his wife. Uh, He storms off to gather his companions and prepare for the long ride home to Tunga in Hordedal. Yeah, it's a dirty trick. Effective. I mean, it's a trick, yes, uh, but it's a trick on a man who's just spearheaded a pretty questionable act of revenge. Well. As we said last time, Helgi might have been the least logical choice for a revenge target. Yeah, but that's the dirty trick, right? I mean, Snorri mm-hmm. steered Thorgils and Gudrun away from the more obvious targets and toward a man that he honestly doesn't care about and can't really affect him. But it's also a condemnation of Iceland's self-image as a place of law and honor. Yeah. I mean, at this point in the saga, who's actually playing the game of honor in a way that a saga audience can respect? Yeah. Snorri and Gudrun are winning, but they're winning because everyone else is losing at the game of honor. When Helgi's own brother-in-law Thorsten takes part in the killing of Helgi and then says, in essence, "Uh, hey, every man for himself when the chips are down. When, when that's an acceptable way to behave, we have to ask, and William Penchak, by the way, does ask, is this what Iceland has been? I mean, even if we can make that argument, and I, I, I fully agree that we can, and I fully believe that Snorri is representative of the kind of the corruption of the law and the system of honor that uh, Iceland is supposed to stand for in the Golden Age, um, I think we can say that Thorgils is still getting the short end of the stick here. Uh, hey, caveat stultus, Andy. Uh-huh. Let the fool beware. Well, true. If you're going to engage in a battle of wits with Snorri Gothi and Guzran Other's daughter, don't show up unarmed. Well, maybe bring your smart brother next time. I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Besides, the trick works, and that's what counts. That's what counts. It, it definitely works. Uh, but this is where we learn that Guzran's sons weren't really in on this cunning plan, because Thorlake right. isn't pleased with the way that his mother mistreated Thorgils. Yeah, it's just occurring to me as we're saying this that 
Um, doesn't that also suggest that neither Gudrun nor Snorri was particularly worried about Gudrun's sons being clever enough to spot the loophole? That's true, yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Since they're both chosen as witnesses. I, I suppose so, yeah. But, I mean, I always assumed when I read that that they're assuming that they're on Gudrun's side no matter what. But you're right. I, mean, I suppose, although Thorlick is not, right? He's really annoyed about this. Yeah, they're just discovering this for the first time. I, yeah. didn't, I hadn't noticed that, but they, this is their discovery as much <laughs> as it is Thorgil's just now, uh, which implies Oops. that uh, they didn't really expect yeah. him to spot the uh, the, yeah. the shenanigans. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, Gudrun does try to smooth things over. She offers to send Thorgil's home with some expensive gifts as a compensation for his <laughs> efforts and for the humiliation, frankly. Uh, consolation prizes, really. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible idea, and Thorlick rightly predicts that, well, Thorgils is too proud a man to bow down for a few trinkets, mother. Well, it's a thought that counts. Is it, though? And if he's unlikely to accept her gifts, then she says that Thorgils can just ride home and console himself. <laughs> well, no subtext there at all. And uh, that's how Gudrun works. Uh, the the matter is settled, uh, exactly as Gudrun would like. Mm-hmm. Thorgils rides home empty-handed and frustrated. Uh, Gudrun gets her revenge. Uh, the boys will he be empty-handed for long, Andy. Yeah, well, uh, the boys are happy. As he goes home to console himself, and uh, everything went exactly as Snorri had hoped it would. Yeah, no, he's a shrewd man, that Snorri Gothi. He's going places. He's the perfect thingman. Well, until you find his lackey standing over you as you bleed out. But sure. Part 47. The only certainties in life are death and weird poetry. Well, I mean, since you brought it up, uh, we can tackle the first of the three deaths quickly. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Gudrun's father. Uh, old Zwief, remember? Uh, well, he died in winter. That was quick. Well, the saga tells us that his his death is widely considered a great loss because he was such a wise man, but we didn't really get to see that wisdom in action much, so we're just going to have to take their word for it. Well, now he did advise Gudrun on all of her marriages. <laughs> Look how those turned out. <laughs> yeah. Not much evidence of his great wisdom in this saga. No. Uh, either way, he's buried at Helgefelt, uh, where Gudrun had recently had a church built. Yes, but he's not the only man to die that winter. Guest Oldlifson gets sick around the same time that Oldsweef dies. Now, uh, for anyone who doesn't remember, Guest Oldlifson is the guy who interpreted Gudrun's dreams for her way back when yeah. when we introduced her into the saga. Uh, and he also then rode on to visit Olaf Peacock. And when he parted from Olaf, he predicted quietly to his son Thor the Short that he wouldn't be surprised if Botley should one day stoop over Kjartan's corpse and in slaying him bring about his own death. Yeah. And that wasn't his only precise prognostication that day. When parting ways with Gudrun, he asked her to send his regards to her father, Olsvif. He said, Tell him that the time will come, when the distance between our two dwellings will be shorter than at present. It will be easier for us to carry on a conversation then, if we're still able to talk. Yeah, and this prophecy, which, I mean, I didn't I didn't think much of it when I read it for the first time. I thought nothing uh, it, of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it proves to be true, of course, because all of Guest's prophecies do. Uh, before he dies, Guest expressed his last wish to his son, Thor. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be buried in the consecrated ground of Helgefeld's new church. Thor promises to do this, and the only problem is that the weather is so cold that the shores are covered in ice and the bay is frozen over, and there's... There's just no way to ferry Guest's body to Helgefeld from Barthestrand. 
Well, and that's when something miraculous happens. There's a huge storm that arrives with winds so strong that all of the ice in the bay is driven from the shore. And the following day is just beautiful and calm. And that allows men to load Guest's body onto a boat and and move it to Helgefell. And Guest's body is then placed into the same grave as Osvith. And so that's how his prophecy came true, that the distance between the two is now much shorter than when one lived at Barthestrand and the other in Selingsdal. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's a happy ending, but all I can think of is how these yeah. two bodies are just tossed into the same <laughs> grave. Well, tossing's a bit harsh. I mean... I assume they're lovingly placed into the grave side by side. Or one on top of the other, I don't know. They're not just being, they're just being like, flipped end over end. Yeah, I mean, don't they have more room for grave spaces? You gotta chuck these two well, dudes in together? we just said it's cold, it's winter. Oh, that's right? true, one hole's good enough. You wanna dig two graves? Yeah. <laughs> they also threw in the, uh, the cat that died recently, uh, one of the servants, right. <laughs> um, they had some trash they needed to get rid of. Got rid of some potato peels. <laughs> right. Oh, sure. well. Um, at least it's consecrated ground, so it's all going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Thor the Short returns home to Hagi on Barthestrand after burying his father. And that night, another huge storm hits, and all the ice is driven back along the shore, and the bay freezes over again. Now, everyone thinks that this is a great omen that the bay had cleared for the transportation of Guest's body, because all travel was impossible in the bay before and after that. It's a miracle. Sure, but but here's my question, John. Yes, Andy? Well, we're in the middle of something, so, I mean, what's the point of Uh this interlude? Is it really just to tie a bow on that prophecy from Chapter 33? Because that's kind of like... Yes and no. I I definitely think the author is using this chapter to begin the process of, of wrapping things up as neatly as possible. But there's also a bit of a nod to the importance of Helgefeld as a holy site. That is correct. Uh, this is the first mention of the church at Helgefeld in the saga. And Guest says to his son that he's often seen brightness in that place. Yeah. It's probably the light from the bonfires glowing inside the mountain where Thorolf Mosterbeard and his buddies are feasting their afterlives away. But maybe it's Christianity. I don't That's know. It. But there's a callback to Arabic Saga. Uh, so, well, maybe. But the 13th century audience is probably meant to think of it from a more overtly Christian perspective. Yeah, maybe. Uh, there's been a church on that land since the days of Gudrun. Uh, and then an important Augustinian monastery is uh, established in 1184 and lasts until the 16th century. Mm-hmm. That brightness is likely to be a sign of Helgefeld's holiness and importance, right? Not for the pagans, but for the future of the Christian faith. Yeah, but that's just an interpretation. I mean, we know from Arabica Saga that the spirit of Thorolf Mosterbeard is in there having a blast with Thorstein Codbiter and Snorri's father, Thorgrim Gothi. And if you want to get the graphic novel to see the pictures of that, I, I highly recommend you go to, like, uh, drive through RPG and uh, pick up a copy of Arabica Saga, the graphic novel. Written by yours truly, <laughs> Andy P. Subtle. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, regardless of what uh, you and your collaborators may have intended, I don't think that's what the saga author uh, was probably intending. The yeah. author might even be working in that Augustinian monastery, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. We know it's a it's a manuscript production center. 
so it's possible that this is actually a cameo, <laughs> but either way. Sure, sure. Um, okay, uh, and and yes, uh, obviously, <laughs> all all of all that you're saying is correct. I'm just playing my role. But uh, uh-huh. we've covered two deaths. Uh, we've mm-hmm. we've got uh, Oldsweef, and then we've got uh, guest Oldlifson. I yep. think we were promised three deaths and some poems. Well, before we get to those, we need to provide just a little bit of background. Uh, this will sound like we're skipping around in the narrative, but honestly, the author just inserts this bit into the narrative without any context. Yeah, probably for a sense of closure, but it could have been handled a little better in, in terms of structure and narrative flow. Uh, well, I mean, I think we could say that for a lot of this saga, especially in the first half. Oh, boy. We got judgments coming up, Johnny. You gotta keep it. F- <laughs> you you keep saying that. So, uh, Andy, you remember Thorgil's Hotlison, right? I do. Yes, uh, he rode off uh, in anger after being played by Gudrun. Uh, he didn't get to marry her after all. And frankly, I I thought he was riding out of the saga at that point too. But uh, oh, not just yet. No. Uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. But we were just talking about guest Oldleifson. Did you know that uh, Thorgil's is guest's grandson? Um, only because of outside research into Thorgils. Uh, when I was reading the saga, no, if I'm honest, I did not. Yeah, yeah, um, I, if you go back to, uh, chapter 57 where he's introduced, that is where we are told that Thorgils is the son of Snorri and Hatla. Snorri, the son of Alf of Dalr. He, he died early in Thorgils' life and, and so he was raised by his mother Hatla, which is where, uh, um, which is where he gets his name, Thorgils mm-hmm. Hotlison. Hotlison, yeah. Yeah. Um, but she's the daughter of Guest Oldleifson. Right. The more you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, Thorgils is apparently nothing like his grandfather. Apparently not. <laughs> uh, Guest is is consistently shown to be a wise and thoughtful man. And Thorgils, as the saga has shown, is a bit of a proud and rash kind of guy who likes to get into the middle of things and doesn't have great foresight. Which is why Snorri Gothi doesn't like him. He's always in the middle exactly. of things, and he seems kind of yeah. capable of getting things done when he wants to. Right. Uh, so at some point, I don't know if it was in the past or just after the killing of Helgi Harbinson, Thorgils causes a bit of trouble for himself when he dispossesses a man of his Gothorth. Uh, yeah, the man's name is Thororin, uh, or Thorarin, as we always say, uh, who is described mm-hmm. as a man of no influence despite having his own Gothorth. Right, which makes him an easy target for Thorgils. I think so, yeah. Thorin has a son named Audgisel, uh, who's described as a man who is rather quick to act. Right, and if you're a saga enthusiast, I think you've got all the info you need for this short story. Absolutely. I mean, you can connect the dots from there if you know all these things. But uh, we've got our characters, we've got our inciting incident, and the rest is going to write itself. Off you go now. Well, but but let's just uh, flesh it out all the same, eh, in case people are interested in who wins. Uh, so Audgisel approaches Snorri Gothi asking for some help. Snorri, who is only too happy to finally resolve this Thorgil's problem, wonders aloud, So, Hotla's layabout is getting ambitious and pushing people around, is he? <laughs> okay. I mean, that's not good. I mean, up to now, Thorgil's has only been a problem for Snorri in that he's kind of an annoying person and he hangs out with Gudrun too much. Now Thorgil's is showing his ambition which the Snorri I know doesn't tolerate very often. Well, hang on. Uh, Snorri continues, When is Thorgils going to run into someone who won't let him have his way in everything? It's true enough he's a tough guy and a strong fellow, but other men of that sort have been done away with before now. (laughs) 
And then he gives Audgisel a present. Well, how generous. What what does he give him, John? I mean, it's hard to tell, but the wrapping is on the shape of an inlaid axe. <laughs> the wrapping. So you can see the inlaid. Okay, sure. It's very tightly wrapped. Well, Yes, it's, it's quite snug. Yeah. It's vacuum sealed. Talk about a subtle gift. Um, so yeah. it's interesting to me that Snorri has been involved almost always indirectly in the elimination of so very many potential rivals in and around Snifelsness. All throughout his life, he does this, right? From the very yeah, beginning. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the plot of the second half of Airbridge's life. Right? Well, I mean, from the moment he arrives, he's doing this kind of thing. Yep. He's he's displacing people of their property, beginning with his stepfather, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he just knows how to set himself up for success, and he is good at it. Yep. Yep. My thing may have a reputation for being a little self-serving, maybe a little underhanded, but those are the green-tinted words of jealous rivals. You cannot fault his results. He definitely, uh, uh, what, what did you say there? Hmm? Oh, what's that? Who's it? Yeah, okay. Hey, it's uh, it's my Thingman Arnkel chirping over here. Oh, oh man. <laughs> well, he he just agrees with you that Snorri is self-serving and underhanded. You're, you're right, Arnkel. See? Jealousy. <laughs> hey, uh, ask Arnkel how Thorleif Kimby's axe tastes. <laughs> well, uh, what, do you, what do you say, Arnkel? Yeah, he says it tastes like blood and disappointment with a hint of uh, Snorri Gothi's self-interest underneath. But, you know. (laughs) Well, he's not wrong. Uh, But yes, this scene with Algisil does echo Snorri's gifting of an inlaid axe to Thorleif Kimby after he complained to Snorri about Arnkel. Yeah, and given how all of that turned out, I have to think that Thorgil's days are now numbered. I have to think that Snorri buys these inlaid axes in bulk. He's just got... (laughs) A crate of them in his house that he gives out to people, whatever they yeah. well, he's, complain about he's, his enemies. He's got a guy in Norway. Yeah, who, yeah. He's got um, a great deal. Well, okay, but while this is going on, there's still a matter of a legal settlement for the slaying of Helgi Oh, yeah, Harbinson. that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, in the spring, Thorgils and Thorsten the Black ride together down to Borgafjord to offer appropriate compensation to Helgi's sons and kinsmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, Thorsten pays two-thirds of the settlement. And Thorgils pays the remaining third. Wait a second. So why does Thorstein have to pay the larger portion? He didn't even want to participate in the hunt for Helgi Harbinson, and Boltley Boltlison was <laughs> well, the his one own who brother-in-law forgot. Yeah, sake. well, Boltley Boltlison was the one who dealt the death blow to Helgi, and I don't recall Thorstein killing anybody. He just lifted the the. Or, or no, he was even guarding the the door, right? Mm-hmm. He got pressured into helping out. He got hit in the face with a spear, and now he's got to pay the majority of the settlement for this trouble. Come on, man. Hey. Sometimes life is unfair, Andy. Well. Maybe Thorsten the Black shouldn't get involved in feuds. Yeah, well, they can be rather expensive. Well, they can be life-threatening, especially if you can't remember what side you're supposed to be on. True, true. Maybe maybe Thorsten the Black should move to Greenland. Safer there. (laughs) Wink. Uh, (laughs) Nope, he never did. Never did. Uh, So, (laughs) once the settlement amount is determined, they agree the payment will be made publicly at the All Thing in Summer. And when the time comes, Thorgils rides out to Thingvetler. Yeah, but as he approaches the lava field just north of the lake, he spots a woman coming toward them. I mean, that's not inherently surprising, right? I mean, lots of people are traveling back and forth to Thingvetler at this time. Yes, but this is a W-O-U-S. W-O-U-S. A woman of unusual size. I don't think they exist. (laughs) 
Thank, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, well, you you know when you tee it up like that. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, she is described as very large. This woman. I what I want to know is, given the opportunity, if you're going to make a Princess Bride reference, how are you not making a reference to Fezzik dreaming of large women? <laughs> Why did you go for the woman of unusual size? Well, because <laughs> she's described as a woman of an unusual size. It was right there. Yes, but. <laughs> Oh dear! Somewhere Fezzik is dreaming. Uh, okay, but so she's she's large, but we're not talking about heavy or obese, right? We're talking about large, right? Right. As in, she's unusually tall and broad and wholly uncanny. So Thorgils rides towards her, and she turns to him as he passes, and she speaks a verse. Let them take pains, these men of note protect themselves from Snorri's plots. None will escape, so wily is Snorri. Uh, yeah, no, that's it's an ominous warning. Uh, but uh, who is this lady? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Now, I think... I think her unusual size and foreboding message suggests that she's at the very least not a human being. Um, mm. If we consider other moments like this in the sagas, my guess is that she's meant to be Thorgil's uh, Fulgia, the spirit that's connected mm. to his fate. And the fact that she's walking away from him is not a good sign. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. Uh, especially given his response. He hears her warning, but he says to her, Seldom did you, when the future looked bright for me, leave the sight of the all thing as I arrived. It's it's like when you say the the fulgip, it's like he's watching his fortune, right? His future and his fate or whatever right away from Or him. his soul, yeah. right? And basically uh, tell him that he's about to die as as she goes. It's it's kind of grim. Yeah, it's not it's not a promising encounter, yeah. but Thorgils rides onto the all thing. What else can he do really? Well, I would turn around and, and I would turn around and follow her. <laughs> He like, I mean, <laughs> where are you going? Maybe we'll go together. Wait, let me come with you. Yeah. Uh, now, everything goes smoothly for the first few days, uh, but then something else strange happens. Yeah, this is this is a weird one. Yeah. Uh, so there's a black hooded cloak. And if you know the sagas, you know that black cloaks are often significant. Uh, there's a black and hooded cloak that had been hung out with other clothes to dry. And suddenly, people who are passing by hear the cloak begin to speak. Hmm. And it says, Wet on the wall it hangs, yet knows of wiles this hood. It will not dry again. I do not hide that it knows of two. Well, that's interesting. Uh, knows of two what? Why does it have to be so mystical? Well, that's that's <laughs> what everyone who hears it wants to know. Two what? I mean, John, talking cloaks offering warnings really need to be a bit more direct, in my opinion. Well, it's not it's not trying to help. It's just it's simply trying to portend. I see. So it's a mood thing. Yeah. Setting the mood. Nothing sets a foreboding mood like a wet black cloak speaking in vague terms. That's right. <laughs> something, of, something of a wet blanket. Okay. Uh, the the next day, the, 
the next day, Thorgils crosses over to the west side of the river with his foster brother, Hotdor, and some other men. Uh, he has to pay out the compensation that he owes to Helgi's mm-hmm. sons. And once Helgi's sons arrive, he begins counting out the silver for them, one piece at a time. At that moment, Audgisil Thorarinson passes by, and just as Thorgils is laying out the tenth coin, Audgisil swings his sword. And as the saga says, everyone thought they could hear his head say eleven as it flew off his body. Yeah. It's a great moment. It's a great line. Thorgils is dead. But uh, uh, I have to admit, John, when I read this, I felt like I had seen this before. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's at the end of uh, Nyal Saga. Uh, yeah. Kari kills a guy who's counting in exactly the same way. That's right. It's the same scene. More or less. Uh, now, Algisl takes off immediately. He's running as fast as he can. But Hotdor, uh, Thorgil's foster brother, catches him quickly and deals him his death blow. Aha. So the black hooded cloak was right. Not one death, but two. I mean, a talking wet black cloak is a trustworthy source, it turns out. Not terribly specific, but trustworthy. Well, it indulges in a bit of mystery. <laughs> uh, now, word of all this travels fast and soon reaches the booth of our pal Snorri Gothi. He hears the report and says to the man who gives it to him, You, you can't have understood... Surely Thorgils will have done the slaying. Yes, but... Oh, yeah, you, it's your line. The man, yeah, he, he confirms the deaths of both Thorgils and Audgisil. Look at old Snorri, playing dumb yeah. like... Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> what? <laughs> Surely Thorgils must have done the slaying. He's such a oh, great this voice you're doing. Guy. I object. I, I, I definitely I wouldn't object. want to see any harm come to Thorgils. He's a real leader in well, the community. You're... You're paraphrasing here and somewhat slandering, uh, but that is the gist. Yeah. Uh, Snorri's covering his tracks. Classic Snorri. And with the passing of Thorgil's Hotlison, I well, think hold we on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Next- uh, hold on. There's just one more thing. Uh, uh, all right, Columbo, you got me. I did it. No, no, but a good reference. Columbo's my daughter's favorite, so uh, <laughs> it, it does present an interesting case. This right. The chapter ends with the following statement, and I think we should uh, we should pause over this. A settlement was reached regarding the slaying, as is related in the saga of Thorgils Hotlison. Ah, uh, yes, the saga of Thorgils Hotlison. Yes. When are we covering that one? Should we do that one next? Sure, if if you can find it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the saga of Thorgils Hotlison is a saga that once existed in some form either oral or written, and it appears to be one of the sources used by the author of Luxtyler Saga, which, to me, would explain the yeah. sudden appearance of poetry. Honestly, there's a lot of poems in this part. Oh, interesting idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah that this could be an interpolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just put um, it in. Yeah, interesting. I did look into this a bit. I didn't think much about the the, the literary angle. I was thinking about the sort of the provenance. Um, I was reading the commentary on Thorgil's Saga in the uh, prefatory material for the former edition of Luxtyler Saga. And after bullying my way through the uh, scholarly Icelandic, there's not much we can say. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it's a lost saga. <laughs> See, it's a, there's an inherent problem. Uh-huh. Uh, the former editors eventually come to the considered conclusion that Thorgils Hotlison was a well-regarded figure in the northwest of Iceland who seems to have earned his own saga. There you go. 
which is really just what the surviving sagas already told us. Right. Uh, I mean, he is referenced in a few sagas, not just here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and more than once, he's counted among the powerful men who don't really appreciate Snorri Gothi's presence in the district and the way that he throws his weight around. But uh, it, most of the sagas that are, he appears in don't really say much more about him than that. Yeah, but... Even there, in the final chapter of Erbage's saga, the author directly references Laxdala's saga. Yeah. Uh, which suggests to me that anything the Erbage's saga author knows about Thorgils probably comes from Laxdala's saga. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe, but you have to be careful with that kind of thing because yeah. these references to other sagas, they could easily be inserted by later scribes who are pulling sure. these sagas together. So yeah. they know about it, but and- did the authors who wrote them originally know about this stuff? Yeah, Thorgos also appears briefly in the saga of Havarth of Isferdinge, uh, where he's described as a well-respected and great-hearted mm-hmm. man, which frankly is not really the picture we get of him here in Luxdal's yeah. saga. Which, I mean, that helps support the idea that Thorgil's reputation was a matter of interpretation. And like we've seen in many I mean, other sagas, um, depending yeah. on what region the saga was written in and what the intent of the author was, um, different characters can come across a little differently. Um, of course. Yeah. Well, and of course, it depends as well on who the author might be a descendant of. Yes, very much so. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what we have here is uh, we have something going on with Thorgils that reveals something of a regional bias concerning Thorgils' character. A very pro Snorri bias, I might add. I mean, hmm. look. But yeah, it's a it's a competing tradition. Uh, it's one where one region sees him as the hero, another sees him as a nuisance. Exactly. The the regional bias would be preserved in the oral and literary traditions of each place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, to be fair, I don't think that Thorgils comes off that badly in Laxdala Saga. I think he's an unfortunate victim of Snorri and Gudrun's scheming, but I don't feel like he's really cast as a bad guy. What does he do that's so terrible? Um, I mean, he is called haughty and an unfair man. Sure. I believe the saga said... Hang on, hang on a second. Uh... Hang on, let me get the line. Uh-huh. Uh, here, here, wait. Here it is. It's at the start of chapter 57. It says, Engi varhan kalathar yavnathmar. So, uh, translated, he wasn't called an even-handed man. Sure. I mean, look, John, uh, back in our Kjartan e- uh, episode where we were discussing Kjartan, you were criticizing the saga for calling him stuff, but him not doing things, mm-hmm. right? Well, here we have bias. The saga is reporting that this man is one thing. And yet what I'm seeing Mm -hmm. is a man who's very patient and capable. He convinces Thorstein the Black and Lobby to participate. And gullible. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying it's not all bad. Questionable, maybe, Uh but not all bad. All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, we've wasted a lot of time, especially uh, all the time that is going to be edited out. (laughs) Um, but I am, uh, I'm not sure that conversation went anywhere productive, honestly, if I'm being honest with you. Wait, whoa, wait, wait, nowhere productive. We covered that we don't know anything about Thorgil's saga. That's correct. We speculated wildly about his, how his character might or might not have been thought of shortly after his lifetime yeah. and in texts that we cannot read. How is that not productive? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly how. That is exactly how. <laughs> uh, but, you know, even a great scientist has to uh, prove what is not before they can prove what is. There you yeah. go. But, uh, you know, that's the end of Thorgils, and uh, it comes not a moment too soon. Harsh. No, no, because 
Johnny, there's a ship on the horizon. It's got... Johnny? Yeah, Johnny. Yeah, that's you. You're Johnny. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And it, this ship... Not a, not on my worst day. <laughs> well, uh, this ship is full of cargo and lumber, and it's being piloted by Thorgil's rival for Gudrun's affections. Part 48. Do's and don'ts of wedding etiquette. So, the skipper of that ship is Thorkel Eilfsson. I bet no one saw that coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the leading candidate to become husband number four for Gudrun, according well, to he's Story the, He's the only candidate, as far as we know. Well, yeah, now that Thorgils is dead, conveniently. Yeah, I'm not sure he was ever actually a candidate. In his own mind, yes, but yes. nowhere else. Yeah, true, but Thorkel is. Yeah. Uh, now, as, as we mentioned in the newsreel at the start of the episode, we last saw Thorkel sailing off to Norway in the company of Grimm, an outlaw he totally failed to kill. <laughs> that was a funny... Uh, it was like tacked on to yeah. the end of our, I guess, two episodes ago. It was just yep. tacked on, right? Yep. And he, he, he attacks this outlaw, tries to kill him. He yep. ends up in a uh, mounted position where Grimm is on top. And... Uh, no, not like that. I'm talking like MMA style. I I don't know which one of those I find more disturbing. Well, I saw your face and I think you you heard the term mounted and you were thinking of your dogs and that's not I was what I'm think, I was about. thinking of horses actually. <laughs> He's riding him around the clearing? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, Grim ended up in the power position, let's say. Yeah. Okay. And and helps uh, it helps me out. Yeah. I prefer to think of it as the Grendel's mother position. I don't know. What, where are we going with this, John? Help me I don't me know out. why the hell you brought it up. Steer, steer me in a direction here. Uh, how about back to what we actually have to talk about? Okay, yeah. So <laughs> it, what what I want to talk about, aside from the weirdness of that whole episode, was the fact that Thorkettle was carrying the sword Skofnung, which he'd borrowed from Aeth Skekison, and somehow failed to return before he got on yeah. that ship. Yeah, so the entire episode, I mean, from from borrowing and not returning the sword to utterly failing to use it successfully, it's not really an auspicious beginning for Thorkel in this saga. No, not at all. But let's see if we can redeem him a little. Mm-hmm. So Thorkel has been gone for a couple of years while all this other stuff has been going on. Mm-hmm. He's outside of Iceland when Gudrun made her carefully worded promise to the late great Thorgils, which is uh-huh. good for him. Uh, and Thorkelt's used the time well. He's made connections in the Norwegian court mm-hmm. and become a very successful merchant. Well, good for him. And as you mentioned a minute ago, his ship is sitting low in the water right now. And it's because of a full load of timber that he's brought back with him. Thorkelt's mind isn't on business. Mm-hmm. He makes a quick visit to Snorri Gothi to exchange the news. And the conversation very quickly turns to Thorkelt's chances with Gudrun, which is I mean, right I'd where they left off. pretty good. Mm-hmm. She went through an awful lot of effort to leave open the idea of marrying him, and all that's really missing at this point is a formal proposal. Well, that's what Snorri tells him, and uh, Thorkettle says, Your counsels run deep, Snorri, and I'll certainly take your advice. This is the other side of Snorri's reputation, by the way. His, yeah. his counsels are only cold if you're on the outside. Oh, yeah. If you're in here with Snorri, it's nice and warm. Well, yes, which is why I'm not asking for any advice from the guy. Uh, hey. now, how, how warm is it there by Snorri? Oh, it's 
That's toasty. Well, let me ask you this, John. How close does he sit to your uh, your first seat at the table? Oh, not that close. <laughs> I'm not a fool. Um, have you noticed that he's gotten closer over the years, though? <laughs> I have noticed that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, well, anyway, speaking of which, it's left to Snorri to do the actual proposing, mm. which is an odd situation. But uh, It's not, though. That's pretty traditional. You know, that's it's, that's it's, it's unseemly. No, but it's unseemly to propose marriage your own self. Right? You usually have a go-between handle this for you. That is not true at all. What what a, what a young man does in the sagas is approach the father and say, "Hey, dude, but I like." Th- but Thorkel is not a young man. I well, yes, but he's got he a could... place in the world, and so he reaches out to his more prominent friend and relative and says hey uh what do you say but john gudrun is a thrice widowed woman yes she can handle her own business and he's he thorkettle is a man about town a man of the world if he wanted to approach her and ask it's with it's within the norms to do but that. it's been established all the way through this that it's with thor it's with snorri's help that thorkel is getting to as far as he is well, I think now, that's true. Uh, so, you know, to cut Snorri out of the deal at this point would be both kind of presumptuous and also, given that it's Snorri Go, the unwise. Well, there uh, there I would showing, agree with you. Showing that you care about Snorri's opinion is a good way of continuing to enjoy the benefit of Snorri's opinions. Yes, and, and his friendship. Yes, uh, I think that's right. And so Snorri visits Gudrun and explains the situation. Mm-hmm. And she agrees to this match, basically on the strength of Snorri's recommendation, which is why right, well, someone like Thorkettle would want Snorri to go and ask for him. Right. I mean, she does also say that her sons will make the final decision for her. Which is interesting. But honestly, that's just her blowing smoke. This is Gudrun. She does nothing on anyone's terms but her own. Yeah. But, I mean, she knows to stick to convention when it doesn't cost her anything, right? Sure. And so everything is arranged and it goes off without a hitch. Well, one hitch. Well, maybe two hitches, now that I think about it. Uh, But which one did you mean? Well, Gudrun stipulates that she will throw the wedding feast herself. Interesting. Which is a little unusual. Very much so. And since Snorri and Thorkett had already offered to host the wedding, she has to begin this new relationship by overruling both her fiancé and her powerful cousin. Mm. All in a day's work for Gudrun, really. Well, she knows what she's doing. She, she throws a big bash for over 160 guests. Mm, uh, 60 of them come with Thorkel and uh, Snorri, and there's 100 of her own guests. Well, look at this. I mean, if this saga has taught us anything, it's about establishing a position of power from the get-go with big parties mm-hmm. and drawing as many people in as you can. Exactly. And with Gudrun, would you expect anything less? No. Uh, but again, she's following in the footsteps of uh, her predecessors. Ow the Deep-Minded, Olaf oh, Peacock, those definitely. people. I mean, in these late chapters of the saga, we, I think we really see the story coming full circle. Yeah. And part of that is establishing Gudrun as an important figure and a figure very much in the mold of Alv. Mm-hmm. But do you think that she's really living up to Alv? Does she have the people that's, around her? I mean, that's a loaded question. And we can I think we can kick that can down the road to our next episode when I'm assuming we'll be summoning Gudrun. Well, we must. Uh, Mustn't we? You you said you wanted to mention a second hitch in the wedding plans. 
Well, I mean, not so much in the plans as during the party afterward, because one of Gudrun's hundred or so guests is a man named Gunnar, and he's been living with her for uh, for a bit. Well, yeah, ever since he got into a spot of legal trouble. Well, yeah. So Gunnar's an outlaw. Mm-hmm. He killed a man named Thithrandi Gaitison. I'll go back. He killed a man named Thithrandi Gaitison. And in fact, he's got the nickname Thithrandi's Bane. And he's pretty famous as an outlaw. And more importantly for our story, the man that he killed was the brother of Thorkettle Gaitison, one of Thorkettle Eilson's best friends. And I understand it's a lot of Thorkettles, but hopefully mm-hmm. you get the idea. And it doesn't take long for Thorkettle to recognize Gunnar from the descriptions that his friend had given him. Right, and so Thorkettle asks Gunnar who he is. He approaches him at the wedding, and Gunnar mumbles something incoherent. Uh, and of course, Thorkettle says, Well, whatever that was, it wasn't the truth. You match descriptions of Gunnar Thirandabani. And if you're the warrior people say you are, you can't wish to conceal your name. Well, if you're going to get pushy about it, I guess I won't bother concealing it. You've spotted me fairly enough, but now that you have, what do you plan to do about it? Ah, you'll learn that soon enough. And he orders his men to seize Gunnar. Oh, well, grabbing your wife's guest at your wedding feast, (laughs) maybe not the best idea. Well, you know, yeah, presumably planning to execute your wife's guest. Mm-hmm. That's also not very good. Yeah, if no. I'm being uh, but Thorkell's well within his rights here. Uh, Gunnar's a full outlaw, so he's mm-hmm. at the mercy of anyone who catches him. Outlaw means just that. He's not under the protection of any laws, and he can be killed with impunity. Or with a sword. You don't need to use impunity. I, I really, are you proud of that? I just wanted uh, a chance to remind everyone that Thorkettle is still carrying the sword Skolfnung, which we need wow. to talk about. <laughs> really, really crammed that one in there, didn't you? <laughs> well, it's well, got to be but okay. But Thorkettle's not about to behead a guy at his own wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might be wanting to, but he's not going to be able to. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, this whole scene causes a bit of a ruckus, as you'd expect, and Gudrun is immediately in the middle of the crowd. She tells her followers to protect Gunnar and to spare, and I quote, no one who commits any act of violence. Such as killing an outlaw. Such as. Yeah. So she's telling her men to kill her husband if he tries anything. Well, that all depends on whether he tries anything, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> sort of up to him. <laughs> Remember, she's got 40 more guests at the wedding than Thorcut does. Uh, and she's also the host, right? There are some clear obligations of a homeowner to anyone who's under the protection of her house. Mm-hmm. It's not like Gudrun's reaction is totally unexpected or out of line. Well, I mean, it's her wedding day. Uh-huh. It's a little unexpected to start a standoff with her own husband. Everyone <laughs> at this play, they, they, they all, everyone freezes waiting to see what's going to happen next. Well, almost everyone. Snorri Gothi claps Thorkettle on the shoulder and he says, Well... You should have known better than to try this so forcefully, Thorkettle. You now see how determined a woman Gudrun is, since she intends to overrule us both here. And I like to think that he's sort of chuckling a little as he says that. Well, it's possible. I mean, Snorri's the only one in the room who isn't taking this very seriously. 
Yeah, no, Thorkel definitely is. You know, Snorri, that I have an obligation here. I promised my friend Thorkel Geddesen that I would look for this man and kill him if he came west. Ah, but you have a greater obligation to me, don't you? And you might want to think about your own necessity. I mean, you'll never find a woman the likes of Gudrun for your wife. Search though you may. Right, well, and presumably the subtext here, at least part of the subtext, is that one of Gudrun's unusual qualities is her willingness to slaughter her new husband if he gets out of line in her house. I mean, is that really a subtext here? Well, it's parenthetical. Uh, and Thorkel sort of suddenly realizes that he's in the middle of embarrassing himself in front of everyone. <laughs> yes. Uh, he backs down as long as Gunnar is removed from the party, which he is. And so the rest of the feast can go smoothly. And really, I mean, once she's gotten her way on this, Gudrun is a perfect host. Right. And that's, again, what we'd expect from any important figure in the sagas, right? Public True. magnanimity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madelung and Spruit both talk about Gudrun's constant focus on not just her own honor, but the honor of her household. Yeah. And this moment is about both. Uh, so there was no chance she was going to compromise. But once she's got things sorted out to her liking, it's time to show that she can be a good winner. Yeah. And and predictably, she does that through ostentatious generosity. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes away with gifts, especially Snorri. And in return, he offers to have Botli Botlison come stay with him at Tunga for a while. Mm-hmm. Thorkettle and Gudrun settle into a married life, and Thorkettle turns out to suit Gudrun pretty well as a husband, honestly. Why? Well, in the first winter after they're married, he uses all that lumber that he brought with him from Norway to build a larger and much more impressive hall than the old one that she had. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Larger and more impressive than the old one. Mm-hmm. The- the one they just hosted 160 people in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This one is bigger than that. And That's better. a big haul. Well, I mean, they share a taste for fine display, and mm-hmm. no one has that kind of money like Thorkettle. Sure. It might be a little ostentatious, but it suits both of them. Sure. And Gudrun tests Thorkettle pretty quickly with all of this. She asks him what he's planning to do about Gunnar, who's still living on the property. Well... I'm assuming you have some ideas about that already. You've taken such measures to protect him that I assume you won't be satisfied unless he's treated well at our party. Well, you're right about that. I want to give I, I want you to give him your ship so that he can leave Iceland. And also, I want you to supply him with anything he might need for that voyage. Now, there are two ways that this can go, right? Well, there's really one way, but yes. <laughs> Go ahead and explore the other possibility. No, there there is the version where Thorkut decides to push back, but he's smarter than that. And mm-hmm. of course, he's learned how to get along with Gudrun. So he just smiles and says, Well, you don't think on a small scale, Gudrun. A petty husband wouldn't suit you at all, and wouldn't be a match for a spirit like yours either. Let it be as you wish. Yeah. Finally, someone who understands how to get along with Gudrun. Well, yeah. I mean, just really just treat her as you would a wealthy man with the right to do what he wants. In other words, pretty much the way everyone treats Snorri. Well, there's a reason why these two get along so well, Andy. Yeah. So uh, that is the end of Gunnar's story. 
He uh, he thanks Gudrun profusely and sails for Norway at once on Gudrun's husband's ship. Yes, <laughs> full of goods provided by Gudrun's husband. <laughs> right? I mean, geez. Uh, but, you know, he arrives in Norway and he is a well-respected man there. So all goes yeah. well for Gunnar. Yeah, that's the end of his story in this saga. But there is yeah. a Thouter. There's a short story about Gunnar and the tale of how he got the name Thidrandi's Bane. Well, he got it by killing Thidrandi Gateson, uh, yes. obviously. Moving on. Part 49. Payback. All right, this next bit I think we can tell pretty briefly. Uh, Gudrun's sons have dealt with Helgi Harbinson and are kind of at a loose end in the saga for a bit. And now the story picks up their thread again a couple of years on. Uh, Botley is now 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And Thorlick is uh, how old, Andy? <laughs> you son of a bitch! Don't patronize <laughs> me now. This this hardly counts as math. When Boltley was four, Thorlick was eight. So if Boltley's sixteen, Thorlick is thirty-two. <laughs> <laughs> Flawless. Flawless math. Nah, he's twenty. Obviously, yes. Uh, so, Boltley goes off to live at Snorri's house for a while, but uh, Thorlick's fully grown into man's estate and decides he wants to travel abroad. Hmm. His stepfather, Thorkel, gives him money to buy a share in a ship, and Thorlick sails to Norway, where he enters the court of King Olaf the Saint and remains there for a few years. Saint Olaf is king. Yep. So, this this saga really has been jumping ahead in the timeline yes. because Olaf reigns from 1015 to 1028, but we're just a little over 20 years after the marriage of Guthrun and Boltli. That's Boltli, not Boltli, Boltlison. Uh, and that happened right after the conversion of Iceland to Christianity. So we're suddenly in the middle of Olaf's reign around mm-hmm. 1021 or 22 when Thorlake arrives and probably more like 1024 when he heads back to Iceland. Look at you with the chronology. Sometimes I surprise even myself. I, you warmed me up with the math question about well, the sure. ages. Uh, now, meanwhile, over at Snorri's home, uh, Boltley spends a year or two just just living the life of a young Icelandic aristocrat. Why uh, wouldn't he? Just enjoying himself. And when he returns to visit uh, his mother, to visit Gudrun and Thorkett after turning 18, he asks for his share of his inheritance from his father. He wants it because he's decided that it's time that he get married. Well, now, given where he's been spending his time, we can hazard a guess about where his would-be bride could be found. Yeah, uh, one of the things about Snorri Gothi is that he has a lot of kids. A lot of kids. Maybe upwards of 16 or 18 kids. Uh, And Baltly has taken an interest in Snorri's daughter, Thordis. The saga makes a bit of a meal out of the machinations that go into pulling off this marriage, but honestly, none of it means anything. Everyone's in favor of the match, including Thordis, and the wedding happens that same year at Midsummer. Yeah, and the reason that the saga wants to draw focus on this is because of the importance of these two lineages linking up. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, there, there, there is really no drama here. But you can imagine what any kids from this wedding would have to deal with, right? I mean, Grandma Gutherin and Grandpa Snorri are... That's too intimidating old folks to have to live up to. <laughs> well, we'll see about grandkids next time. 
Uh-huh. Uh, but for now, uh, Boltley and Thordis enjoy a quiet year of marriage before word arrives that a ship from Norway has beached. And one of the owners of the ship is Boltley's big brother, Thorlik. There's a warm reunion between the two, and the, the brothers spend a lot of time together that summer. But as the summer goes on, people notice that the two of them are going off and whispering by themselves a lot. Plotting? What's going on? Plotting. Secret meetings in the vicinity of Snorri Gothi? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Snorri invented secret meetings. You don't play that game on his turf. Well, it's not long before Snorri does notice what's happening, and he walks right into them as they're whispering. Because he can guess what they're talking about. Hey, boys, uh, what are you planning that makes you forget about eating and sleeping? <laughs> That's not a line you want to hear coming from Snorri <laughs> It means you're in trouble, uh-huh. big time. Well, the brothers try to cover it up at first. Uh, Boltley says, mm, you, You'd hardly call it planning, Snorri. There is little point in anything that we are saying. Right, and if, if Snorri had a bullcrap meter, it would be screeching and emitting smoke right about now. Yeah. Look, I suspect you wouldn't be disappearing to go off and talk nonsense or joking around. Tell me what you're talking about. The three of us will certainly be no worse at making plans, and I won't oppose anything you're thinking of that would increase your honor. Hmm, interesting. Well, Boltley knows his father-in-law pretty well, and... Mm-hmm. He's not taken in by this this <laughs> scheme. Uh, lesser men might be, but not both. Well, and speaking of lesser men. Well, Thorlick, speaking of lesser men, <laughs> is definitely not the clever Ornolf in this duo. Uh, so he pipes up and he says, Well, we're planning to attack the Olofsons and deliver a harsh punishment. Just, just coming out with it like that, huh? We consider that we have cause, and now that I am King Olaf's man, and Botley is your son-in-law, well, we needn't do anything more. So, in other words, they're planning on breaking some eggs and forcing Snorri to make an omelet. In a nutshell, yeah. Uh, in an eggshell, actually. But, but John, <laughs> I... I I was really leaning into the fop voice there. You really and I, were, I ex- and I don't know why. I, I was expecting a reaction from you, and nope. I didn't get it. And I have nope. to say, I'm disappointed. I Well, then maybe you should get foppier. <laughs> well, I don't know how to get foppier <laughs> than that. That was I, really you know, hard fop. You, you've really, I've developed a callus when it comes to your voices. <laughs> uh, <laughs> takes a little more to get through. Fair enough, well, fair enough. That's fine. So uh, they can break all the eggs they want. Snorri doesn't like being anyone's cook. Why? Uh, Botley's killing has been fully avenged by the death of Helgi Harbinson. There's been more than enough hostility already without pursuing this matter any further. Yeah. Now, at this point, Botley, who's a little quicker on the uptake than his brother, says, Snorri, how does it happen that you're not so ready to offer your support as you claimed to be a minute ago? Thorlek wouldn't have even mentioned this to you if he'd had consulted me before speaking. And cue Thorlek looking embarrassed. (laughs) And... Your argument doesn't even hold up. Everyone knows that Helgi's death was compensated, while our father's death remains unredressed. Yeah, and that's the opening that Snorri is looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's a compensation settlement you're after, I can certainly open negotiations on that front. Well, and just like that, the Boltlesons are stymied. I mean, they've already taken blood vengeance by killing Helgi Harbinson, so they can't really 
argue with Snorri's offer as much as they might want yeah. to seek yeah. blood vengeance. And Snorri wastes no time on this because he knows the brothers aren't going to be satisfied by promises for very long. Yeah. And I, I, I got to say, I love Snorri's machinations here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Snorri has been working from the moment that he that all this started when he met with Gudrun at that cliffside by the river to stop the violence, right. to secure some kind of peace. Right. But uh, the Boldesons, they do remember their mother waiting 12 years for Snorri to act on his offer of assistance uh-huh. after their father's death. Exactly, he might take yeah. his time. Yeah. yeah. Snorri, I think Boltley knows, is a slippery little sneak. Oh, He's a peacemaker, Andy. A well, peacemaker. I, did, I said that, but still. Yeah. So Snorri takes a few men and goes immediately. He rides to the farm of Hotdor Olofsson to explain what's happening. Hotdor mm-hmm. uh, is politely welcoming, but Snorri gets right to the point. I won't be staying with you. I wanted to come tell you that Botli and Thorlik Botlison are no longer content to have received no compensation from you and your brothers for the slaying of their father. But I've convinced them that I should seek a settlement and see if it isn't possible to bring this ill fortune among your family's kinsmen to an end. Yeah. It's really interesting to see a slaying that happened so long ago mm-hmm. resonating as far as it does. Yeah. To the point of not only did we get a, a, a blood vengeance in the feud, but now we're, we're also seeking many mm-hmm. years later again compensation. Although this, and, yeah, this is a compensation that is clearly meant to to sort of head off more violence. It's yeah, absolutely. You know, it'd be very uh, hard just, to justify it, this legally. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's it's interesting. We haven't seen this in many of the sagas that we've done, where sure. where something can kind of ripple out in the, in this way. This is a very different way, and 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 Snorri's trying to control it, trying mm-hmm. to uh, almost like throwing his body over. <laughs> the the potential <laughs> explosion, not to give Snorri any credit. Wow. Um, but uh, I do feel like that's what the saga said. Look at you, look at you accidentally here. admitting that Snorri is being a peacemaker. Anyway, wow. but <laughs> but Hathor isn't really upset by Snorri's presence and his suggestion. In fact, he says that he and his brothers are in Snorri's debt for turning the blood vengeance away from them earlier and toward Helgi Harbinson. Yeah, I mean, it's a little rough on Helgi, though, isn't it? I mean, he it did is. help them essentially just to support his brother-in-law, right? He, yeah. had, he was the only one with no vested interest in what was happening. <laughs> I now, agree. everyone seems pretty unmoved by his violent death. Yeah, well, weren't we just talking about omelets and eggs? I mean, hell, yes. he's a big egg. Uh, and Snorri is trying to cook up an omelet of peace for his family. Is that it? Sure, sure. Why not? Now, the upshot is that Hathor is open to negotiation, and they go back and forth for a bit, but ultimately they do come to a deal. Hathor will agree to outside arbiters who will settle a compensation amount, but Snorri will agree that outlawry, property, and Hathor's Goldorth are all safe from settlement. So the right. Olafsons are in a good situation with this deal. Yeah, yeah, and that's the deal that is eventually agreed to. The author tells us, it is not reported how much was the figure they set, only that it was fully paid as stipulated, and the men on both sides honored the settlement. I like that um, move. Yeah, and, and when the compensation agree- agreement is made and when the exchange is made, Hotdor and his brother Steinthor uh, give gifts to the Boltlesons to seal the deal. Mm-hmm. Boltley receives a fine sword, and Thorlick gets a fancy shield. Yeah. I, I just I, I want to draw attention to that line. Yeah. Uh, because it is something that the sagas do so well. 
to convince you that they are history, mm-hmm. even though right. they're not. Right? Yeah, it's a good game. The author tells us that it is not reported how much uh-huh. was the figure they set, which implies that if he had the records... Right. The rest of it of, was reported, yeah. Everything else is reported, but this part is not. Therefore, yeah. Yeah. everything that I've been saying so far from the beginning to the end of the saga is true, mm-hmm. but I don't. I just don't but know the figure. Bit. Yeah. What a great little move yep. by the, the author to legitimize what he's saying as some kind of history. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. But it, but it becomes tricky for later audiences who are looking at these sagas. Of course. And this, this creates one of the big the big problems of saga scholarship, which is mm-hmm. the historicity of the sagas. How much can we trust this as a report of the events of this moment? Right. If it's passed down. So then you get the oral versus the written argument, right? Like, right. is this an oral story that is passed down from this moment that tells us this is a feud that happened? This is the reality of the situation, and it's just mm-hmm. preserved in this cl- this cool saga. Or is this an author that is really imagining a past and creating a narrative whole cloth? Right. Right, and what you end up with is a very complex text that feels like history, yeah. reads like literature, and really satisfies the conventions of neither while seeming to do both. You well said, well said, and and we'll just keep going. That's it for the feud. The feud's over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately nobody got what they wanted, uh, but yeah. both sides come away willing to put the past behind them. Just as the uh, you know, is this history or is this literature? Right. We'll just say yes, sure. Why not? It's sure. neither, and it's both. Uh huh. But uh, I think the most important thing to note here is that Snorri gets what he wants. Hmm. There's peace in the family. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one else gets outlawed or dies. The feud yeah. is over. And his rival Thorgils was humiliated and killed, as we've covered in this episode, after serving as an unwitting dupe in Snorri's and Guthrun's plans. Happy endings for everyone. Uh, well, maybe not for Thorgils. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, uh, we're done now, right? Laxdala saga is over. Yeah. No, it's not over. Uh, oh, the story not. of Gudrun's life hasn't been fully told yet. Oh, so she's the central figure. Yeah, even though the final chapters are mostly going to be about her sons, it's pretty clear by the end that what we're really doing here is following Gudrun's story. Which is interesting. And there are some definite loose ends there. Uh, remember, for one thing, Gudrun's prophetic dreams told of the deaths of four husbands. Mm. Well, so far she's only buried three. Yeah, uh, Thorket shouldn't buy any green bananas. <laughs> well, now would be an appropriate time to revisit that prophecy. I remember something <laughs> of a a headdress that was too heavy mm-hmm. um, because her husband was so rich or something like that. But Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so she seems I think next time we'll happy. see what happens to that lovely headdress. Yeah. Well, that's what we're headed for. The, uh, the rest of Gudrun's life and the fortunes mm-hmm. of her sons and of her fourth husband, the heavy headdress man. Great. Uh, then there's just one more thing we have to do tonight. The evidence before the court. Skofnung, the sword of Rolf Kroki. Well, here we are, 13 episodes in, and we're still making stuff up. Well, how is this making stuff up? Courts accept evidence all the time. 
it's one of the reasons we have courts. All right, fine. I, look, I'm willing to play this game. Mm-hmm. You are the wizard of the bar for this episode. <laughs> but I agree that if we're going to continue, if we're going to start talking about artifacts, well, Skolfnung is, it's a really good one to start with. And yeah. we have been talking about, I don't know, we even talked about like having a, a, a saga brief on Skolfnung at yep. some point. So, yeah, for starters, yeah. Skolfnung is famous. Maybe yeah. the most famous persnickety sword in the whole of the sagas. <laughs> Maybe? Well, Grettir's short sword, Kar's Gift, is a... It's got a pretty good pedigree as well, but Skolfnung yeah, okay. is Skolfnung. Okay. Uh, I'm actually glad you mentioned that, because part of what I want to talk about is the convention of grave robbery. Oh, okay. And both of those swords are won by Icelanders robbing the graves of dead kings. But more completely, I want to talk about the magic of the sword. Mm. All right. Well, I I know the magic of the sword, and Mm -hmm. I know many sagas that mention the different magics of the Mm -hmm. sword, but let's see what you've got. What have you brought to the table? Well, for starters, let's briefly cover the history of the sword itself. Okay. We've laid it all out in the podcast, but it's spread out over nine years and several different sagas. So we should probably pull it all together. All right. Uh, I, I I happen to know and love uh, Skolfnung. Mm-hmm. You want me to start or do you want sure, to go? by all means. You have the floor unless your dogs are already all over it. Uh, there's a dog there and there's a dog there and yep. there's a dog there. I have three dogs. They're all laying very Find near me. Find yourself about an 18-inch square patch and get to work. Okay. So the origin of the Skolfnung legend is in the saga of Hrolf Kraki. That's usually translated as the saga of Rolf ladder legs, though mm-hmm. I tend to think of it just as Rolf Kraki. Yeah. Now, Rolf is a legendary king among the Danes who fights a series of battles against various rivals. It's a fantastic saga. If you haven't read it, please do. Yeah. Um, we are not going to get to it maybe we'll ever. We'll get to it someday. We will. We'll get to it someday. Uh, <laughs> now, he's an analog for Hrothgar's nephew, uh, Hrothulf in the uh, famous saga of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyone who knows that story will have at least a rough context for the place and time that we're talking about. I mean, that's a very rough context, though. Yes. Uh, Hrolf's saga is classed as a Fernaldo saga, uh, mm-hmm. a legendary saga, which is a polite way of saying a saga about myths or a lying saga. No, uh, in it's this a saga, saga of ancient instance, times. Yeah, you know. Uh, so in this version, Beowulf is Bavar Bjarki, and he's sure. kind of a werebear. Well, he's sort of a werebear. He's got a bear spirit animal, kind of a a Patronus, if you will, but more violent. A murder Patronus. <laughs> a murder Patronus. There you go. Anyway, so in Hrolf Saga, Hrolf has a sword called Skolfnung. Uh, so here, uh, Hrolf is fighting uh, King Adils of Sweden. And it says, at the same moment that King Adils tries to put his spear shaft towards himself, King Hrolf rushes at him and hacks off both of his buttocks, right down to the bone, <laughs> with the sword Skolfnung. Skolfnung was the best of all swords to have ever been born in all the north. The legendary Hindercleaver Skolfnung. <laughs> Hindercleaver. Now, Skolfnung has two magical qualities besides the ability to carve butt cheeks. The first is that it is supposed to contain the spirits of 12 berserks. 
And that's a, that's a lot of berserks. I mean, it's about eight more than I would have managed to get into a sword, but yeah, it's uh, a lot. I, I feel like there's, I'm trying to reach for it. I feel like there's a berserker's dozen joke right here somewhere. Well, good luck with that. You keep thinking about that. <laughs> uh, but the second quality is that Skolfnung sings loudly whenever it successfully hacks someone to the bone. Specifically to the bone? Yeah. In Rolf's Saga Kraki, it suggests that it's, it rings or sings loudly when it tastes a bone. Hmm. So can we assume this is a poetic way of describing the sound of metal hitting bone? I mean, we could if we were dead inside. Yeah, we could say that. <laughs> but, uh, I'm going with the idea that the sword sings the hallelujah chorus whenever it hits a tibia. It's not really very pagan, though, is it? I suppose not. But uh, aren't all world religions connected in some mm-hmm. way? Yeah. But maybe maybe it sings the overture from the Nibelungen lead. How about a verse from The Hedgehog Can Never Be Buggered at All? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those are the qualities of Skolfnung in Hrolf Saga Kraki. And at the end of the saga, we're told that the sword is buried with Hrolf in his mound. It is a right. buried sword, so it's gone. Right. No one else is going to have access to this mm-hmm. thing. Never again. So at this point, the sword ends up in the family sagas through a short anecdote in Lanama book, in the Book of Settlements. We're told of a young Viking named Skeggy, who was a brave man and traveler who adventured among the Rus. When he returned from the east, he went to Saland in Denmark, where he broke into the burial mound of Hrolf Kraki and stole Skofnung, King Hrolf's sword. Interesting. So Skeggy does very well out of this robbery. Mm -hmm. He also finds the axe of Hjalti, one of Hrolf's champions, and a heap of treasure. But we're told specifically that he doesn't find the sword of Bolthvar Bjarki. Eh, you can't win them all. Eh. Uh, So this Skeggy is Skeggy of Midfjord, who has shown up in several of our sagas already. Mm -hmm. He's not always a great guy. We've seen him engage in some pretty problematic practices. But he's always called a great warrior and dueler. And he's sometimes generous as well, because in Cormac's saga, Skeggy loans the sword to Cormac for a duel. Yeah. Um, We brought this story up a few times over the years because, well, it's got one of our favorite lines in the sagas, this one. Yeah. uh Uh, So Cormac asks to borrow the sword, and Skeggy launches into a whole set of complicated rules for using the thing. Uh, It comes with a pouch, but Cormac shouldn't look inside it. The sun can't shine on the pommel of the sword hilt, and the sword itself can't be wielded except when preparing for the duel. When the holder is ready for a duel, he should blow gently on the blade, which will cause a little snake to slither out of the hilt. The wielder must then turn the sword sideways to let the snake return to the hilt, and then you're ready for combat. And and Cormac's immortal response to this is, What will you sorcerers think of next? Right, which is actually, uh, all of this is actually a standard part of the user guide for a Dell Inspiron laptop. That is an old man joke. Very early 2000s. I am an old man. I'm allowed. <laughs> okay. Well, so we decided at the time that this is probably a reference to a Damascened blade, right? Mm-hmm. The the serpent is the pattern of the metal that we see described so much in Beowulf, for example. Yeah, yeah. But what about the rest of it? Uh, no bearing the blade until you're ready to use it. 
pouches you can't look inside of, blowing gently on the sword. I don't know, wake it up, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a lot. So some of it gels with other legends about the sword, but the only constant in Skolfnung's story is that it keeps changing. The rules right. of how to use this sword change. Yeah, and then the next owner of the sword is Aeth Skegison, who inherited it from his father. Are you talking about Aeth Skegison, my, my thingman? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, we mainly know Aeth as a peacemaker in the saga of Thord Menace, keeping his buddy Thor and his father from killing each other. But in Lakstyla Saga, he's an older man with adult children, and one of his sons has been killed by Grim Helgeson. Grim's been outlawed for the killing, but he hasn't left Iceland, which is kind of an embarrassment for Aeth's family. So Aeth himself isn't much of a warrior. He's more of a lawyer and a thinker and a... Mm-hmm. Very positive influence on Iceland. But his <laughs> his relative, Thorkettle Eilfsson, mm-hmm. is willing to track down and kill Grimm if Aeth will lend him Skolfnung for the job. Right, and this is where we get another version of the rules for wielding Skolfnung. Aeth tells Thorkettle that the sword can only be used under certain conditions. The sun must not be allowed to shine on its hilt. It may not be drawn in the presence of women. And any wound it inflicts will not heal unless rubbed with this healing stone which accompanies it. (laughs) Nothing about a snake this time, but uh, still some pretty obscure rules. But I'm guessing that that magic healing stone comes in a handy carrying pouch. Well, I mean, that does make sense. And Cormac was told not to mess with the pouch because he was going into a duel. So... Presumably, he wouldn't need or want to heal any wounds he dealt to the guy that he was fighting, right? Why would you want to? Yeah, that's logical. Uh, Now, in this saga, the healing stone needs to be set up because it's going to be a plot point after Thorket fails to kill Grimm and instead becomes his buddy. Yeah, but what about the new detail about drawing the sword in the presence of women? That could be a reflection of the, the bans on violence against women, I suppose, or... Or it could have something to do with the gendered magic that's in play here. Possibly. But are you suggesting one of those? Well, uh, I mean, I, I would buy the violence idea, but more in line with the idea of dueling and battle as male spaces and activities. Even though we know they weren't exclusive to men, the, the literature generally treats weapon wielding as men's work. Right. Uh, breaches out, stabbing her ex through the shoulder, notwithstanding. Yeah, I said generally. That's an outlier. Uh, Sure. Uh, And one other thing. Uh, Some of the rules governing the use of the sword are actually repeated in another context. Another sword? No. There's a stone in Norway. It was discovered during World War I. Not because of the war, obviously. It's in Norway. It was plowed up in a farmer's field. Oh, you're you're talking about the Eggia stone. Yeah, Cupid doll for the gentleman. Yes, the Eggia stone. Oh, uh, I like a cupid. The stone, the stone has a long inscription in runic writing on it. It's like really long. It's over 200 runic characters. It's all carved on what appears to be the underside of the stone. Yeah. And now, John, those runes have been notoriously difficult to interpret. So how far are oh, you going to go with this? Absolutely. So salt the taste. But the first part of the runes can be interpreted to mean it is not touched by the sun. And the stone is not scored by an iron knife. No man may lay it bare when the waning moon runs across the heavens. 
So uh, keep the engravings of the stone out of the sun. And don't expose them unnecessarily, which explains why it's face down, right? Yeah. So at least some of the rules of Skofnung may reflect elements of traditional magics. Hmm. That's interesting. And the parts that aren't reflected in the runes of Egya may also be survivals of ritual or traditional magic that we haven't yet corroborated. And here's where we come to our conclusion. Hmm. I was wondering if you had a point, but I I'm enjoying the point. journey. I didn't say a point, a conclusion, okay. Andy. Skofnung, like Carr's gift, enters into the semi-history of the sagas when it is found in a grave. Well, found. Stolen. Whichever. But yes, go ahead. So the instructions on the stone, which were hidden from the sun, are buried in the earth. Mm-hmm. And its instructions are similar to those of an unearthed sword with magical properties. It seems like maybe the provenance of Skofnung is the key to understanding the arcane rules surrounding its use. Hmm. I mean, you've come up with some interesting connections here. It suggests that there was a ritual concept of magic, and that ritual concept of magic, at least for certain things, involved hiding things from the sun mm-hmm. or hiding things from other other things, whether that be the or presence prying of women, eyes, right? Exposure. Right? Whatever that might be. Yep. So I think there's some potential here. Uh, at the same time, I think that when you're talking about Skolfnung, you're talking about a famous sword that is part of the literature, is part of the cultural imagination. Mm-hmm. And as part of the cultural imagination, it is going to pop up now and again. And it is not so much what Skolfnung does or what the rules of Skolfnung might be, so much as is Skolfnung there? Um, Skolfnung is a cool sword to bring up. Right. And you can kind of invent your own rules because nobody really knows the rules of Skolfnung. But we until- do. That's my that's my point, is that I think I think we do. I think there's a set of rules, a set of sort of understood rules that govern things like ritual magics and rune carvings that are being used here to create a set of rules for the use of this buried sword. Perhaps, but by the time these sagas are being written in the 13th and 14th centuries, Mm -hmm. nobody knows that stuff. John, these are people that have been Christian for hundreds of years. That's not, that's not right. That's not fair. That's, that's like saying that nobody uh, knows about traditions about the number 13 just because that's been around for a very long time, or nobody knows about turning a teacup three times Wittershins in order to read the tea leaves, just because that's a very old tradition. Mm-hmm. People still know about these things, right? We do pass these things on orally from generation to generation. We may forget their purpose, their efficacy, why they are important to the magic, but we don't forget the ritual. We don't forget the rules. John, are you suggesting that across the sagas from Hrol mm-hmm. Saga Kraki to um, to Cormac Saga to Lachstyler Saga mm-hmm. that the rules of Skolfnung are consistent. I would argue that they are drawing from a pool of knowledge uh, consistently. The, the specific rules that get brought up, the specific rules that are written down are not the same from one saga to the next, mm-hmm. but that they potentially draw on the same kind of uh, a pool of knowledge about the rules for using certain magics. Yes, absolutely. 
Uh, John, that sounds to me, I think you articulated it very nicely there. They're drawing on a pool of knowledge that once existed that mm-hmm. no one knows anymore. And so they just make crap up. That's Is that fair? No, not the they okay. crap up for it. They're not... They're not saying wear a big rubber nose and jump about three of times before you swing the sword, not. right? There, they are. There are constraints what they're talking about because they are drawing on a collectively remembered set of rules. Again, sure, those sure. rules they may have been become unmoored from their significance, but the rules themselves are not forgotten. Hmm. I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you there, uh, but that's just like your opinion, man. Well, hey, uh, that's fine. Uh, as long as we're just talking about Skolfnung, uh do you know about the most recent version of the legend? Uh, I don't know. How recent? Like very, very recent. Uh, Skolfnung is an important artifact in the video game God of War Ragnarok. John, did you know about this? I do not. I've heard of God of War, but I didn't even know there was a Ragnarok version. Yes, you don't even like. How could you not know? I don't play video games, Andy. Jesus, John. What do you do with yourself? You I'm, I'm aware that there's kids? an Assassin's Creed about Vikings. <laughs> Does <laughs> that like score a, me any points? Just too busy, you know, leading classes in Boy Scout troops. Mm-hmm. God, what a sad life. And pl- playing games of Whist. <laughs> right oh well I don't know. so apparently and i have an xbox i don't have a playstation so i haven't played but i have learned that you can win the hilt of skolfnung by traveling to the graves of the 12 berserkers whose souls were once housed in the blade and fighting each of them in turn so andy, a- andy would you suggest that um people who play this game might do this and follow the rules even though they may not know the provenance of those rules they don't need to worry about the rules, that perhaps John. Perhaps there's a tradition here that, that the story is drawing from, even if people involved in the story don't know about it? No. I think that the oh, okay. people who designed the right. game read Hrolf Saga Kraki <laughs> and heard that there were 12 yep. berserkers, and they were like, oh, it would be cool if you could get this sword by fighting the 12 berserkers, and so they create a side quest. That's a good number of berserkers. <laughs> right. And it, it becomes a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. and it and, yep. But it does connect to the legend of this sword. It goes sure. back to the legendary saga. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can actually go on a whole side quest and you go to a 13th grave, which is the mound of Rolf Kraki himself. And like Skeggy, uh, you can go in and fight him and defeat him and earn that hilt. And presumably, profit follows. And hopefully, you well, have a bag with a stone that can heal people you mm-hmm. cut with it. I yeah. But in the meantime, you've got grave goods, which are profit all by themselves. Sure. Sure. So, uh, to, r- to wrap all of this up, I guess, um, I want to draw your attention to Robert Eggers' film, The Northman. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that also uses the idea of invading the mound of a king to gain a powerful weapon. Yep. And... I think I mentioned this in the uh, the episode that we talked about the Northmen. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film. I think it's really oh, yeah, yeah, excellent. it's really yeah. cool the way they handled that. Yep. No, throughout that film, you could see that Eggers and Sion had really done their homework. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the second Sion reference in two episodes. There you good go. For, good for Sion. <laughs> really. <laughs> oh yeah, what a what a, what a treat for him. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he's just listening to this and thinking, well, that's two episodes in a row that right. they mentioned right. my name. Huh? Now I've made it. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> well, 
I mean, we're not King Olaf Trugvison, but uh, we do offer some level of fame, don't we? Right. Well, anyway, their their goal, um, Robert Eggers and Sion, was to create a new kind of saga for the modern era. And I, I it's hard to say that it, it, it wasn't that. It definitely felt like one. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's the story of Skolfnung, Andy. Hmm. Excellent. I'm not sure it was really all that relevant to the understanding of the story of Laxdala Saga, but I'm a sucker for magic swords, and I'm a sucker for weird digressions and strange things that we well, talk about here, and the, this is the place for it. Yeah, and the problem is you got to stop being a slave to relevance. You'll be a happier man if you embrace the irrelevant. Look digression in the face and make it your friend. Sure. Oh, and uh, for anyone listening, uh, we're, we'll be talking a bit more about Skolfnung in the next episode, because the end of this saga includes the story of how this sword disappears from history. Ooh, a nice teaser for the next episode, our final episode. Boom, boom, boom. For now, that's got to do it for our penultimate episode of Lax mm-hmm. Saga. Once again, we've gone on a bit too long, probably. Uh, but what a ride. What a ride indeed. I don't think anyone's complaining, right? But That's <laughs> <laughs> right, we can't hear them. Uh, no, we can't. But we will be back soon with our final episode of Lock Style Saga before the judgment. Last Center. episode. Last episode, yeah. Before the judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the meantime, tell us what you think about this story as it stands. Who came out on top in the game of honor between Kjartan's family and Boltley's? Are Snorri, Gothi, and Gudrun really that clever? Or is everyone else in this saga just hard of thinking? And what do we need to cover in our long-awaited summoning of Gudrun Oswald's daughter in our Ooh, next episode? interesting. Let us know. And how do they let us know? Well, everyone knows. If you're listening to this 13th episode of Lockstyler Saga, if you don't know how to get in touch with us, <laughs> I don't know what you've been doing. Maybe falling asleep while we talk. <laughs> but we can be found lurking over on the Saga Thing Discord page, where people are discussing everything from saga misogyny to Terry Pratchett novels these days. Mm-hmm. We also have an email. It is sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, and you can reach us there with longer-form questions and anything else you need to know about. Uh, we have delayed answering any questions because we're just trying to get through this damn Lockstyler mm-hmm. saga, where we're trying <laughs> to get through these summonses, uh, which uh, seem to take a little bit of time. But you can also find us on the usual social media sites where we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can find us at WordPress.com as Saga Thing Pod or Saga Thing Podcast. And, you know, fill in the yep. blanks. You'll figure it out. Whatever. Yep. And when you do get in touch, uh, what's your favorite ridiculous rule for use of a weapon in history or fiction? Mm. Uh, my go-to is probably the one ring with the rule don't. How about you? All right. Uh, as always, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. But a comma chameleon and a karma chameleon are two different things. Well, one of them is not real. One of them is merely a kind of punctuation followed by the word chameleon. Uh, but it is a poon or play on words. <laughs> is the karma chameleon a real thing? <laughs> yes!
I mean, oh it's my a, god, how young are you? It's a song I'm well aware it's, of, Boy George, and the Culture Club. It's yes, yes, the Karma Chameleon. But you're suggesting that the Karma Chameleon is no, a real thing. It's not thing. a species, you ass. <laughs> well, that's what you were implying. <laughs> I'm aware of the song, but that doesn't oh, make the Lord. Karma Chameleon a real thing. It's a concept, oh, my God. an it, abstract idea. Hey, hey, it's real to me and to Boy George, by God. <laughs> recording can we just it's almost one in the morning here i have to get all up in right. four and a half hours all right as always <laughs> my god thanks for listening <laughs> you want to sound like less, less or do you, do you want to try for a less pissy version <laughs> well you got me in the mood now john i was trying to remember the tolkien thing <laughs> oh hey did god. you know that guest old son is my thingman uh. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>